Part four of Introduction of a Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But there is another sort, as I've already mentioned, which is prepared for the sole use of natural cowards in the following manner. The tick is a small animal of a dark color, flat body, and sharp snout, which it sinks into the skin of men or dogs. Then it remains immovable, sucking nutritious juices, causing a painful itching, till it swells to the size of a chestnut, and then falls off, changing into a dirty whitish hue. These insects are found in great numbers on the grass and low shrubs, and the falconers collect them by lying naked on the ground, from which they creep in multitudes on their bodies. They brush them immediately off before they fix themselves into a large vessel of white chinaware, and thus gather them into a cup filled with lees of wine. Here their appearance rises imperceptibly to a bright flaming red. Their motions grow amazingly irregular and violent, and at length they emit a very delicate sound, which, by laying your ear close to the cup, you may hear distinctly, sometimes like tender, sometimes like gleesome, and sometimes like martial music. This informs the falconers that the insects have reached the last stage of madness, in at which they take them out of the cup and fix them on each dog, placing them on the veins under the tongue, which, on account of their softness, are easily penetrated and ready to emit the poison. The dogs, when they feel the bite, jump and frisk and gamble up and down their enclosures, all life and joy. But on the third day, when they always look heavy and stupid, the falconers give each of them three drops of the gall of a fiery serpent and a fleck of the wax, which excretes from the ear of a female harpy, both dissolved in fair water. The bite of the tick naturally brings on madness, but this composition throws the body into the universal trembling, deprives the limbs of life and motion, and causes the teeth to fall out. The venom of the insect is produced by inebriation, and it acts so nicely in concert with the mixed gall and wax that the madness into which it throws the dogs is immediately succeeded by death. It is by this method that no harm ever arises to any creature from the fury of the dogs, which would otherwise bite the whole country into a frenzy. These dogs are instantly cut in pieces and distributed as were the former among the iries for the for the production of the most sublimating eggs when you consider the food of the birds which lay these wonderful eggs you will not doubt of their power to light up in the breast of even cowardice itself the intrepidity of a hero this must be the effect when the honest fidelity of the dog and the bloody perseverance of the tick both stimulated to the keenest madness by the spirit of the grape are joined to the hot ferocity of the falcon, and all concentrated into one luminous flame of magnanimity within her eggs. And, indeed, experience makes it evident that from an egg of this sort there passes into the blood of those who eat it such a glorious assemblage of heroic qualities as enables them to look smiling on the most dreadful perils. It swells their imagination with the loftiest ideas of magnanimity in public spirit and empties them of all selfish regards for their own private concerns and preservation 
They pant for the battle when their country is in danger, and exult at the fight of that danger, because bravely to encounter it covers them with glory, whether they fall in the conflict or survive it. Their souls expand heroic as the various terms of the engagement glide before the enraptured fancy, and give them the noblest opportunity of signalizing their genuous ardor and steady revelation. They soar on wings of conscious dignity when they look forward to the splendor with which their exploits shall blaze in the eyes of admiring posterity, and anticipate the applauses with which their name shall be honored by future poets and historians. Their sole dread is the dishonor of yielding to a foe who menaces their sovereign, their country, their religion with perdition, and when the weapons of death terminate their glorious career in the combat, they breathe out their undaunted souls with ecstatic joy, able to die for such great and interesting objects, but not to live by deserting them. It is well known that dueling never took place among the Turks. They look on it as the consummation of human folly, to repair honor or to determine between right and wrong, by the blood of one or other of two persons who chance to fall into an unpremeditated quarrel. They cannot conceive how a man becomes a liar, or a villain, or a scoundrel, by receiving these titles from a fellow who has a fontry enough to bestow them, nor how he is transformed into a coward by showing himself too magnanimous to set himself on a level with a wrong-headed fool. They are equally at a loss to point out whence arises the propensity of the world to arrange themselves on his side who is so barbarous and stupid as to think it bravery to expose either another or himself to the chance of being murdered for the sake of a difference which, in even their own opinion, might be more rationally adjusted. They feel themselves groping in the dark when they endeavor to comprehend why two men are trained and supported by their country for its defense against the violence and inroads of its enemies shall be reckoned men of honor in fighting against each other, when it is evident that the public is defrauded by the death of either to the amount of their former subsistence. They have heard of the positive laws against single combat, and are amazed by the concurrence of madmen in favor of that, of that absurd custom should render them ineffectual, but at the same time they compassionate every man of genuine sense and bravery whom the insolence of a considerable fool lays under the hard necessity of either drawing his sword against a bundle of pride, indiscretion, and ill-temper, or of forfeiting his character in public opinion. By what turn of mind the Turks are so much puzzled in considering the subject of dueling, whether by their sense or stupidity, is a point too sublime for me to determine. But of this I pretend to be certain, that they condemn the practice unanimously and declare that a man is obliged to preserve his life for the benefit of his country and religion and sovereign and for the sake only to lay it down. This way of thinking which they indulge against dueling is the consequence of the use which the troops make of falcon eggs, whereby they are rendered so brave that they need not fight their own countrymen to establish this character and so haughty that they think a fellow below their notice, 
whose insolence cannot be otherwise repressed. But, though the eggs under consideration are, in general, of the highest advantage to the Turkish Empire, instances may be produced wherein they appear to have been perverted to the worst purposes. Those who are skilled in the history of Ottoman princes will recollect several instances of this nature, and, among the rest, that of the murder of Ebn Abdul Moldala, Ebn Shiraz, one of the best muftis who ever taught Mussulman the way to heaven. A scarcity of falcon eggs, having happened in the reign of emperor who advanced this worthy musti to his dignity, the Janizaris laid this calamity to his majesty's charge, and on that account deprived him of his crown and life. This horrible treason pointed out the danger of feeding these troops any longer with falcon eggs, and accordingly a plan was concerted in the next reign to take this food from them altogether. The only legal obstacle to the execution of the plan was the passage of the Koran, wherein the right of the Janizaris to falcon eggs was plainly founded, and that the Mufti was obliged to explain away. The imperial command was signified to him with all solemnity, and he knew well he must either obey it or submit to the bowstring. He chose obedience as the fastest measure, and forced his conscience and orthodoxy to bend to the authority of his sovereign. Accordingly, he prepared a labored discourse on this subject. And on an appointed day, the emperor, attended by his court, and all the Janizaris, came to hear him deliver it. He declaimed with much warmth and eloquence against the use of the eggs in question, from the fury into which they inflamed the eaters. He showed but the concurrent judgment of the most solid and grave commentators that these eggs were originally intended only to Mohammed's own soldiers, and he made it appear that the money which these eggs cost might be laid out much better in building and endowing mosques and hospitals. His discourse being finished, he declared with an audible voice, falcon eggs to be incentives to high treason, and every Janizari to be an enemy of his prince and country who should hereafter taste them. Then he promised all the various joys of paradise to those who lived up to the spirit of this declaration, but then threatened the wretches with the bitterest of hell's torments who transgressed it. When it was ended, the emperor and all his courtiers rose up with a holy and exemplary air of devotion and said, Amen. After the venerable musty who was greatly edified by this attention to religion in such great men. But the declaration by no means as acceptance to the Janizaris as it was to their monarch and his attendants. They were exasperated that a resolution was taken to rob them of their favorite breakfast. But their patience could hold no longer when they reflected that an old priest who had no right to meddle in their affairs pronounced the injurious sentence. Fury boiling in their heart, quaked at every joint, reddened in their eyes, gnashed in their teeth, and made them tear their mustaches with violent hands. The sultan and his retinue, who well understood the meaning of these signs, retired in an order wherein more attention was paid to speed than is consistent with the solemn dignity of an imperial procession. The impious Janizaris, now freed from every shadow of restraint, flew on the holy man, and, 
after treating him with the coolest insolence, were just going to impale him alive when he begged a moment's audience. After some altercation with another, they agreed to his request, assigning this piece of inhuman raillery as the reason of their compliance, that they had never heard the dying words of the Mufti, and did not know that they might be more diverting than any he had ever spoken in his life. Silence being ordered, the venerable saint addressed them in the following speech. You are going to shed my blood, O ye Janizaris, because I have dissuaded you from falcon eggs for the good of your country. But I predict that the instant I am arrived in paradise, a curse from our great prophet will begin to operate on your bands and produce its fullest after many revolving years. Hawks will henceforth decrease in the empire and at length totally abandon it flying towards that point of the heavens where the sun is never seen, and invigorating with their eggs a nation, which is one day to shake your empire to the very center. Then shall ye, O ye Janizaris, and your successors, turn your timid backs to the sword of your enemies, as doth a pigeon to the terrors of the ravenous eagle. They could contain their fury no longer, and immediately afflicted on him every barbarity their relentless hearts could think of. His murder, however, and that of his master, had rendered every succeeding mufti very orthodox on the egg text, and every succeeding emperor very attentive to the egg magazines. The hidden spring of these violent disturbances was supposed, not without any good reason, to be Sefer Eben Shamgar Eben Morli, a priest of the most insatiable ambition, which he concealed and promoted under the most sanctimonious veneration for orthodoxy. This man's countenance was, in public, beclouded with austerity and moroseness. His words flowed in censorious advices of bitter invectives, and his heart was wrapped in cunning trick and hypocrisy. He flattered the former emperor, who saw into his worthlessness and interested views, in hopes of obtaining the muftiship. But he flattered him in vain, and, on that account, secretly employed the famine of falcon eggs, which fell out soon after, to inflame the Janizaries to rebellion, which was but too successful. His rival was now the object of his lurking rancor and fury, and he watched for an opportunity to sacrifice him to his disappointed and exasperated ambition. The same of his extraordinary piety and devotion had been published in the Faraglio, by the holy tongues of milliners and seamstresses, who managed the necessary buffness of the sultanesses in the city, and his very advanced age procured him access to that serene abode of beauty in order to give lectures of conjugal fidelity and ghostly comfort to the charming captives. He soon opened a path to himself by means of their superstition into their very souls from which he drew the quickest and most certain intelligence of everything that was decreed in the divan, and, among other resolutions, that of depriving the Janizaris of their falconings by a declaration of the monkey. The secret deluded his heart with joy. He immediately began to practice on these troops, and soon prepared them for perpetrating that sacrilegious murder which paved the way for his own advancement to the highest ecclesiastical dignity of the empire. With this he was solemnly invested. The same day his rival went to paradise, 
at the seditious and menacing request of the Janizaries, to whose outrageous importunity the emperor durst not give a refusal. This short detail seemed necessary to explain the former transactions, and therefore have I given it. Which of these two priests was the best man is evident not only from their history, but still more striking from the war which flamed so lately between the Russians and the Turks, and is not yet extinguished. It is no secret that falcons are now much scarcer in Turkey and much plentier in Russia than they were formerly nor that the northern armies have the eggs of these birds in great abundance, while the Mussulmen are in the greatest want of them. A gentleman of unquestioned veracity and great erudition, who has free admission to papers concealed from the rest of the world, has informed me in the most authentic manner that a flight of hawks from five hundred iris in the wilderness of Baharim was seen a few years ago to pass northward to the great sorrow of true Mahomedans. They lighted among the rocks of Russia, where they have continued ever since, infusing into the disciples of St. Nicholas that bravery from their eggs, which has enabled them to make the Grand Sultan tremble on his throne, in the middle of his guard, and threaten to fell him one day from Europe altogether. It is from the same worthy gentleman I have also information that the chief obstacle to the peace which these two powerful nations were negotiating was a demand made by the Russians from the Turks of many thousand falcons as a yearly tribute, which the latter absolutely refused, either from policy or inability. The inference from all these particulars is that the Mukti's prophecy is now accomplished, which implies the villainy of his successor who contrived his ruin. The Russians have beat the Turks on all hands, driven them from their own territories, drowned them in their own seas, and threatened to point their cannon against the walls of Constantinople itself. Victory seems to hover above the hosts of these warriors, and leads them on against their enemies to assured glory and conquest. The advantages of crewing to the Russians from the use of falcon eggs ought to alarm the other powers of Europe for their dependency, and make them enter into the most vigorous measures to set bounds to their ambition. When France first established standing armies, she had in her power to awe and annoy all her neighbors. But as they, sensible of their danger, brought in standing armies too for their security, so ought the breeding of hawks to become the capital concern of every nation at present in order to raise them to their former importance with regard to Russia. After all I have said with regard to falconry in former times and in other countries, I cannot forbear thinking that this science appears more rational in my own time and nation and productive of more amusement than in any other period and people which either prose or verse has brought to my knowledge. But while I applaud and perfect the way of hawking to which I have been bred, I do not mean to disparage the Trebizonian, Persian, or Turkish methods. These, as they are all productive of pleasure to those who peruse them, are on that account to be esteemed among the alleviations of human misery. In my own opinion, the man who condemns everything as wrong that does not fall in with his particular notions gives the clearest proof of a narrow mind. 
and he gives an equally clear proof of an haughty, arrogant, presumptuous disposition if he expects that all men are to conform their various tastes to the standard of his. He might, with as much reason, demand that they should curtail or lengthen their persons to his stature, or darken or brighten their faces to his complexion, or strengthen or weaken their appetite to his stomach, and be hungry or full, thirsty or refreshed, just when and how he pleased. Amusements are nothing in themselves in any part of the world, but derive all their value from the delight they bestow on those who are engaged in them. Such, however, seem preferable to the rest that throw the body into the most natural and graceful motions and render the mind least sensible the tedious lapse of time, thus promoting the vigor of the former and affording the most agreeable relaxation to the latter, to qualify both for the necessary and important offices of life. This praise is due to falconry in whatever way it is practiced in the different parts of the world. The sprightly falconer, animated by the love of sport, bursting the silken bands of sleep, rises as early as the lark, and is full of glee, and hastens to the forest in quest of health and manly diversion. His spaniels, snuffing the scent of game in the breeze, traverse every thicket with eager impatience, and mingling their call with the encouraging voice of their master, rouse the echo into joyous clamor from every hill and valley. Cheerful hope plays light in his heart, while his eyes encompass and watch looks the scene of sport, and his hawk testifies by her half-spread trembling wings her keenness for the aerial chase. Mark, the dogs have sprung a woodcock. The eager falconer unhoods the bold-eyed bird, and with a cheering whistle slips her at prey. The cock, impelled by the dreaded presence of his enemy, to his utmost speed. See, he mounts, he mounts, he mounts to the heights of air, direct as the feathered shaft from the twanging bow. The hawk pursues him, rap, 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 on founding pinions, and now breathes with open beak on his train, ready to rise above him. The cock, see, acquires new strength and rapidity from the urgency of the danger behind him, and darts more impetuous towards the sky by the force of terror. The hawk, Enraged by his escape, redoubles her speed and feels herself invigorated for the pursuit by the warmth which her resentment has kindled in her breast. Now, now, they are no bigger than wrens. Now they are dwindled to beetles. Now they vanish and appear to the doubtful sight like the twinkling of smaller stars. Now the falconer and his company, prostrated on the grounds with reverted looks, in vain search for them in the expansive air thousands of elusive bubbles formed in the atmosphere by the weakened fight such as mantle on the pool that receives the thunder and cataract intercept their view with dazzling confusion the cock no longer able to urge his upward flight stretches away in gentle declining direction while the hawk takes the opportunity which fatigue compels him to give her of mounting above him and there there they appear again to the longing sight of the gazing spectators. How rapidly the hawk stoops, how nimbly the cock buckles. See the hawk, how quickly she regains the sky. There she stoops like a thunderbolt, but the cock has once more eluded the blow of death. He makes for cover, and ah, will certainly escape. No, no, down she comes, souse on him again. 
his good fortune has deserted him he drops his head near the thicket which the instant before he viewed as his refuge from his foe the falconer and his company pleased with their diversion takes their way home and the landscape varying to their sight as they walk along presents them with the successive scenes of rular beauties to compose their thoughts agitated by the lively pleasure of such a noble and glorious flight here are plains through which rivers cut its way afford pasture to numerous herds of cattle and wind away from their following eyes among the distant hills yonder the rising smoke draws their attention to a village hid in trees and their thoughts the calm felicity of humble life on one side the hollow murmuring of a distant waterfall and on the other the hoarse noise of the forest on the mountain side gently shaken by the wind mingle in the air and breathe serenity into their souls bleak hills rise before them which they with covered with trees and a mouldering ruin decried them from afar puts them in mind of the ancient family which once rejoiced there and alas it is now to be found only in tradition or in the pride of those who claim their defeat from it from these subjects their conversation passes to sporting when they commemorate with great delight the amazing sagacity of spaniels and the astonishing courage of hawks which are now in the dust nor do they forget the diverting jokes and wonderful exploits of former falconers who sported with their fathers and carried themselves yet infants in their arms the ambition of each man to raise his tail above those of his neighbors throws a strong dash of the marvelous into their narrations which the credulous drink in without thought or examination but which persons of penetration oppose with ridicule or argument or with positive contradiction and extravagant bets the debate beginning to grow warm and to set every man's tongue a-going is happily terminated and forgotten by the near prospect of the house where they are to dine and recruit their wanted strength and spirits they are arrived every man repairs to his room to dress and then into a glorious uproar the whole house is cast orders contradictory as at the tower of babel burst from every apartment servants muttering curses against their impatient masters fly up and down stairs with shoes and stockings and bassoons of water and the doors so merrily cracking and clapping would make a stranger imagine the house was occupied by stocking weavers and joiners or some other equally noisy tradesman the bell gives the joyful signal for dinner the company obey the welcome summons and meet together with the health and good humor smiling in their looks and stomach sharp enough to turn bread and water into a feast the hospitality of the landlord and landlady who preside over the entertainment kindly exhorts their guests to make hearty cheer and to forget their fatigues and weariness in convivial enjoyment now a field is open for displaying the soft and gentle contention of compliments in which the victor is recompensed with the inward pleasing sense of his own superior elegance and politeness and the vanquished is consoled by the secret vanity of thinking himself the object of so many favorable turns of eloquence then what social hobbing and nobbing what friendly pressing to make good cheer what complaints of bad weather and bad roads what wise observation on the quality and prices of provisions what curious anecdotes on courtship and marriages amidst this chit-chat hunger is insensibly appeased and now the table is adorned with bottles and glasses 
the prompters of a more gay and jovial conversation sociality smiles on every countenance good humour wantons to every eye friendship warms every breast and excites an emulation to please and to be pleased the comic tale the polite jest and easy rapture take their turns and make the room resound and every side in the company shake with laughter the joyfulness yields to grave consideration of politics the pretensions of all parties are nicely examined and debated and every man wonders to find himself endowed with wisdom to govern a nation then their eloquence expatiates on horses and dogs and roads and races and wines and farms and banks and hunting and planting and coals and lime and dung and a thousand other subjects which follow one another and are discussed in the quickest succession thus live falconers the most kind generous and frank of men devoid of all guile trick and cunning and drawing as much happiness as they can out of life i shall finish this introduction with just observing that as there is no relaxation more manly than hawking so there is none more innocent or more capable of enlarging the mind the falconer is always conversant with the noblest objects of nature the skies mountains forests and rivers which cannot fail of bestowing dignity and grandeur on his conceptions from these his soul receives an elation of thought which makes him despise everything base and dishonorable and thus he is prepared to become the ornament and benefactor of society post postscript the reader will perceive a difference of style between the following treaties and the preceding introduction the former being written for practical falconers requiring plain language but the latter being intended to amuse demanded a more flowery diction both in reasoning and translations this is my first attempt at an introduction which is not yet so clever as i hope to make it in the second edition the capacity i receive from nature for introductions i have indeed carried into habit that has grown under my hands into a faculty but i must frankly own that i find the utmost difficulty in advancing to the last stage a complete energy to the right honorable archibald earl of ingleton my lord your love of falconry has made your lordship often regret its decay and wish for a plain treaty on that subject which might render its practice easy and induce our nobility and gentry once more to make it their favorite amusement your lordship's kind partiality i fear and not my merit influenced you to flatter me into an opinion that i was not altogether unqualified for this office how i have succeeded no one can judge better than your lordship there is a kind of an introduction prefixed to it which as it has nothing to do with the real practice and was no part of your lordship's desire i presume not to ask your patronage of but if it will any way add at any time to your lordship's amusement i care nothing my lord whether you laugh at me or with me but beg your lordship will not dispute my ancient authorities do me the honor my lord to accept of the treaty itself as a mark of my obedience to your lordship's commands and of the great respect and esteem with which i beg leave to subscribe myself my lord your lordship's most humble and most obedient servant j a campbell end of part four of introduction end of introduction this librivox recording is in the public domain